The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles with me and open up to the book of Daniel. We're back in Daniel chapter 12 uh, today for our second message in the first few verses of Daniel chapter 12, uh, where we've been learning about how God watches over his loved ones. And uh, even during the worst of times, we find that God is watching over his loved ones. Uh, Because what we have described for us in Daniel chapter 12 is the most vile, the most violent, the most wicked, the most wretched period of all time in all of human history. But even during this time, we find that God is still watching. God is still sovereign. God is still watching over his loved ones. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, it predicts that there's coming a time of great distress and that it will be a a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Jeremiah speaks about this same period of of time. If you want to flip over to Jeremiah chapter 30, Jeremiah chapter 30, just to give you an understanding of of how this period of time will be. Jeremiah chapter 30, I'll start at verse 3, where it says, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, and the Lord says, I will... I will also bring back them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Joel describes the same day in Joel chapter 2 and verse 2, which says there's never been anything like it, nor will there be any after it. And Jesus warns us about the same period of time in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21. And he says that then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. It will be a time unlike any other time. And Jesus titles this time the Great Tribulation, the most vile, the most violent, wicked, wretched period of all time in all human history. Revelation 6 to 18 describes the same period of time. Open warfare, worldwide famine, destruction, pestilence, terrors in the earth and the sky, vegetation destroyed, waters turned to blood, demonic creatures that torment the earth, the darkening of the heavenly bodies, the destruction of armies, the affliction of sores, the heat of the sun intensified, supernatural darkness, rivers that run dry. And then on top of all of that, there's this blasphemous ruler of wickedness who's running around the earth doing whatever he pleases, speaking monstrous things against God and afflicting his people. And the revelation that Daniel receives gives a brief summary of this beast who will become king and afflict his people. Back in chapter 11 in verse 36, it says this king will do as he pleases. 
He will exalt and magnify himself above every God, will speak monstrous things against the God of gods, and he will prosper. Which doesn't seem like the, the kind of news that would have been encouraging to Daniel after he's been praying for three weeks about these people. He's been praying, he's been fasting, he's been mourning over his nation Israel, and then he, he's so distraught that he refuses even the most basic necessities of food and self-care, burden for the people of God, and then he receives word from God that things are only going to get worse. Things are going to get worse, Daniel. These people that you've been praying for, actually, let me tell you, they're going to experience the worst of all possible times in human history. That's what's going to happen. And the question is, is what kind of encouragement would this be for Daniel? And we could ask another kind of question. I mean, what kind of encouragement would this be for us? And I might be getting ahead of myself here, but you may be sitting there thinking, like, what, what does this have to do with me? I thought you just told us that we're not going to be here during that time. You know, last week wasn't that part of the message that, you know, we're not going to be here for that great tribulation? You know, what, what does this have to do with me? And what does this have to do with those that came before us, generations before us who didn't experience this time? And what does this have to do with people who might come in the future, generations to come, that might not experience this time? What kind of application is there here for me? Glad you asked that. I'm going to give you the answer up front. You don't have to wait till the end. I'm going to give you the, you know, I'm, I'm stealing my own thunder here, okay? I'm just going to give it to you right up front, okay? Right up front. What kind of application can you derive from a period of time that you might not be here for? Lord willing, none of you are here for. But what kind of application can you derive from that? What kind of encouragement can I get from this? Listen to this. God is able to guard, to preserve, to rescue, and to watch over his loved ones even during the worst period of all times in human history. Amen. Worst time. And maybe you don't think that has any application for your life, but maybe you haven't thought far enough. I think you might be missing the connection. Because if God can guard and preserve and watch and rescue his loved ones in the worst period of all times in all of human history, then certainly he can watch over you today, can he? If God can do this during this time, certainly he can do that during this time, Right? If God can take care of a nation during the worst possible time in the world, can't he take care of you in the times that you live in? This is the God that we worship. This is the God that we depend on. This is the God that we get encouragement from. And there's some of you who right now might be experiencing what you would consider to be the worst of all possible times in my personal life. And I know that because I've talked with some of you who've described your circumstances like that. Right here in our own congregation, we've experienced what I would consider to be a disproportionate loss of life. For a smaller sized congregation, we have an abnormally high percentage of widows and widowers, those who have lost loved ones. And many of you would consider that to be the worst possible experience I could ever imagine in my life. And for some of you, that is the worst possible thing that will happen to you during this life, to lose a loved one. And I can't imagine what some of you might be going through. We pray for you. We provide opportunities to share your grief with others, but you can't remove the pain, can you? We can't remove the pain. It doesn't go away. There's some of you who have had the, the heartache of having your hearts ripped out of your chest by a wayward child. If what the Apostle John says is true, in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And the opposite you could understand would be true, that there's no greater pain than to hear that your children are walking in a lie. 
And we pray for God to have mercy, but we can't save them, right? We can't save them, and the pain is deep. And then there's those long, you know, prolonged, torturous, agonizing afflictions that come by way of physical suffering. Whether it's you or somebody that's close to you, I mean, it's torturous. And the question that you might be asking yourself is, is there, is there any kind of end to this? Is there a remedy? Will there ever be a solution? Or will tomorrow look just like today? And whether that pain is your own personal pain or pain for somebody that you know, maybe that for you is the worst possible experience that you will have in your life. Maybe that's where you are right now. But Daniel reminds us that God is able to guard, preserve, rescue, watch over his loved ones, even during the greatest tribulation to come in all of human history. And it's an encouragement to know that when the world is out of control, at its absolute worst, when hell is throwing absolutely everything it can against the people of God, that God has not lost control. God has not lost control. And I pray that as we walk through this passage that you'll find encouragement for your own soul because even if you are in the, the greatest of all tribulations in your life, in your personal life, God's grace is sufficient. Let's take a look at Daniel chapter 12, starting at verse 1. It says, Now at that time Michael the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you as we always do, Lord, asking that you would grant us your understanding of this word. And Father, that you would open this up to us, help us to, to understand, and, and Father, that we would glory in these things. Help us to be comforted by your word. Help us to be rebuked and exhorted where we need to be. But Father, I pray that you, Lord, would speak through this word and that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, Daniel receives word that his people, Israel, will face the worst distress in all human history, but that did not mean that God had abandoned his commitment to them as a nation. Their affliction was not a sign that God abandoned Israel forever or that the nation would suffer annihilation or be destroyed. And the first sign of hope that Israel has that they'll make it out of this time is the supernatural help that they receive in verse 1. Look at it again. It says, Now at that time Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And it's a reminder that behind the scenes, there's a God who's sovereignly orchestrating all things to fulfill his intended design. And that he'll use even supernatural means to accomplish his ends. So the first thing that we learn is that God guards his loved ones. He guards his loved ones. Again, behind the curtain of what we can see, there's a supernatural universe that's running parallel to ours, intersects with ours, influences ours. There's invisible battles that are taking place all the time that we're not even aware of. And uh, those of you who work for IT will probably get this illustration more than most of us. But, you know, when you power up your laptop or, you know, turn on your phone, you know, there's a front end that the users can see. But behind that, there's a whole universe that users have no clue about. 
All kinds of things are going on behind that screen, right? All kinds of battles are taking place. You know, cyber warfare is going on. All you're doing is just looking at the screen, and there's all kinds of battles that are happening at the same time. You have no idea what happens when you turn your phone on. No idea. You know, malware and viruses and all kinds of things are going on behind the scene, but all we can see is what's on the screen. There's an invisible world that has an impact on everything that happens on the world that you can see. And in the same way, there's battles that are taking place invisibly, imperceptibly. God is moving all the pieces exactly where they need to be, fighting battles that you didn't even know existed. God is doing that behind the scenes, and Daniel 12 pulls back the curtain just enough so we can see what's going on behind the curtain, just so we know a little bit about what's going on behind the scenes in this unseen world. We understand that there are thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities that are both visible and invisible. You know, Colossians 1 speaks about that. Ephesians 6 speaks about that. Back in chapter 10, we're introduced to this idea that there are powers that are even over entire empires. The kingdom of, of Persia had an evil supernatural spirit that had jurisdiction over Persia. Over Greece, there was an evil supernatural spirit that had jurisdiction over Greece. But Daniel's encouragement is that there's not just the, the malware and viruses that are going on. God also has his servants that are right there. You know, Michael, the, the prince, the prince of his people, Israel, the archangel would stand up to guard his people. And Revelation 12 describes the kind of even physical protection that the nation of Israel receives during the time of tribulation because Michael will stand up again. We read that in Revelation chapter 12 last week where it speaks about a woman referring to Israel uh, who was taken into the, the wilderness where she would be preserved by God, nourished for 1,260 days, which just happens to be three and a half years, which is half of seven, which we've looked at before. It's the tribulation period. That's what we're talking about. And that while this is going on, there is a war going on in heaven. Michael, the archangel, his angels, waging war with the dragon, with Satan himself. So again, behind the scenes, there's wars that are happening that we don't even know about. God is working in supernatural ways. And you don't have to understand all that's going on behind the scenes. All you need to know is how to reach IT, <laughs> right? I know who I'm talking to. And that's what Daniel was doing. He was praying. He didn't have to know everything that was going on behind the scenes, but he knew how to go to his God. And that's what we need to do. We need to be coming before the Lord, but recognizing that God is the one who guards me. There's, there's a lot that I don't know. There's a lot that I can't see. But God, who is behind the scenes, sees absolutely everything. And he has not lost control. We go to the God who's in control of absolutely everything. Just one example of how God guards his loved ones. Number two, God preserves his loved ones. God preserves his loved ones. Verse one again, it says there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. That time of distress will be unlike any period of time as we've said before. Matthew 24 actually says unless those days had been cut short, chapter 24 and verse 22, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. There's going to be a remnant. There's going to be this distress like no other distress that we've ever seen, but yet there will be a remnant. Ethnic Israel will survive the Great Tribulation. Last time we were here in this passage, we 
highlighted the distress that would be endured by Israel. And that's true, but we also need to acknowledge that there will be some who will endure it. Endure the greatest distress. Again, in Jeremiah 30 and verse 7, it says there will be no time like this, but he will be saved from it. That Jacob will be saved through this. And it's a reminder that God is faithful to keep his promises. Why won't Israel be completely wiped out during this time of greatest distress? It's because God is faithful to his word. And there's national promises that must be fulfilled with national Israel. Think about this. Why is it so important that life be preserved during this time? Why why, why is that so important? I mean, if, if, if all there is is just like, hey, you know, everybody gets wiped out by the tribulation. Big deal. We're all going to heaven anyway. Right? You know, so everybody on the face of the earth is wiped out and we're all in heaven like, you know, hey, it's, it's better for me, right, to be departing, to be with Christ. You know, let's, let's just all go out in one fell swoop. You know, I, I've, I've said this to people before. If, like, I, I was, you know, in the middle of the ocean and drowning, it's just like, you know what, forget it. I'm just going down, you know, just taking the big gulp, like, just be over with it. Like, why, why torture myself? So it's like if the world is going to perish anyway, it's like, hey, well, I'll just go home, right? But there are people who will be saved through that. Why? Because there is a purpose for them to be saved through that. God has designed that there will be people at the end of that time of tribulation. Why? Because there need to be people who are entering into the millennial kingdom. There's a purpose for keeping Israel alive during the tribulation because there's something that happens after the distress. It's not that, hey, there's just this big distress and then we all go to heaven. No, there's something that happens after that distress for Israel to go into. That's why it's important that people would be saved through it. Because there's physical promises that need to be fulfilled with physical Israel. God says in Jeremiah 31, 36, if this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. I've got things to do with you. So I'm not going to let you go. Isaiah 54.10, For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And regarding God's decrees, the psalmist says in Psalm 148, verse 6, He has also established them forever and ever. He has made a decree which will not pass away. Can, can, Can we be thankful that God keeps his word? This is just one example of how God is faithful in every way. God is faithful to do what he says he'll do. So there's going to be a time of distress, such as has never occurred since there was a nation, but the nation will still be a nation on the other end of it. There's going to be a remnant that's saved. Flip over to Romans chapter 9, just so you can see this real quick. Romans chapter 9. Just to to take a look at the faithfulness of God, and I can't wait to get to Romans. We're heading there. Daniel's almost done. We've got a little bit to go. I'm, I'm loving Daniel, by the way, but, uh, but I'm looking forward to Romans as well. So, Romans chapter 9, take a look at verse 27. Romans 9, 27, it says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly, And just as Isaiah foretold us, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. In other words, we would have been completely wiped out as a nation if it wasn't for you sustaining us. 
God, you are the one who sustains us. You've left us this remnant. And as many times as people throughout history have tried to eliminate the Jewish people, they just can't do it. They can't do it. Why? Because God is at work. God is the one who's preserving. Many will be lost, but it's incredible that the nation still survives. And it's evident that they're being protected by the power of God. Question for you. Are are you amazed at the, the power of God to preserve you? Not only physically, but emotionally, spiritually, that God is preserving you. In the same ways that he's committed himself to to Israel, he's also committed himself in loyal love towards you as a believer. Like, how many times should you have just been wiped out by what you've experienced? Just knocked over, taken out. You know, the riptide just rips you away, right? But because God is sustaining you, you're still here. God is preserving you. Are you amazed by the preservation of God? Are you amazed that you're still standing I love what Paul says. He speaks about his ministry in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 to 10. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. It's like all these things are happening around me, but we're still standing. Why? Because God is preserving me. He's holding on to me. And he's doing the same thing for you as if you're a believer, right? 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surprising greatness of power will be of God and not of ourselves. It's evident when I'm going through these things that God is at work because I know I couldn't do this. God is the one who's preserving me. Philippians 4, 13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And if you haven't read that verse in a while, it does not mean that, you know, I can leap the highest tower and I can climb walls and, you know, I'm going to get that job and I'm going to get that girl and I'm going to do whatever because Christ is strengthening me. You know, I've never boxed in my life, but I know I'm going to knock this guy out because (laughs) it's Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, just just prepare for the smelling salts, right? You know, that's, that's not you. What does it mean I can do all things through him who strengthens me? It means I can get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In every and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things. It doesn't matter where you place me. I can do that because Christ is going to strengthen me to do that. So even if I endure hardship, suffer need, I'm hungry, I live with humble means, I can do that because Christ is the one who's strengthening me. He will preserve me to go through the most difficult of times. And that's what we can hold on to. It's God who sustains us. God who preserves us. He preserves his loved ones. Number three, God rescues his loved ones. Look again at verse one. It says, and at that time, at the end of the verse, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Point three, God rescues his loved ones. And the word for for rescue here means to, to slip away, to escape, to be delivered. But what does that mean? Because we know that there will be many who perish. Many are going to perish during the the Great Tribulation. Actually, flip over to to the book of of Zechariah. If you don't know where it is, turn to Matthew and flip back a couple pages. Zechariah, go back through Malachi into Zechariah in chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13. And in Zechariah, we we have a, a parallel to Daniel chapter 12 talking about the same period of time when God is going to refine national Israel. 
But Zechariah gives us a bit more detail about those who will survive and those who will perish. Take a look at chapter 13, verse 8. It says, it will come about in all the land, and here the land speaking about Israel, declares the Lord, listen to this, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. Two-thirds of all of Israel will perish. And some of those will be believers. There will be martyrs during the tribulation, according to Revelation 6, verse 10, and chapter 7, and verse 14. But, as it continues, it says, but a third will be left in it. So God's going to leave a third of Israel behind. Two-thirds are going to be destroyed. One-third is going to remain behind. In verse 9, and I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined. Test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. There's going to be many who perish. Two-thirds of all the Jewish people will perish. One-third will escape, slip away, be rescued. And everyone who is left are going to be believers. Everybody who's left, that one-third that's left, they're all going to trust in the Lord. I will be their God. That's what the text says, right? Jeremiah 31 and verse 34 says, They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. Does all Israel know the Lord today? No. But after they've been refined and tested and purified, there's going to come that period of time when everybody who's left will know the Lord. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. And Romans eleven twenty six 26 says, and all Israel will be saved. That's a promise. That's a promise. That's going to happen, fulfilled in the tribulation. All of Israel is not saved now. Not everybody who's a, a descendant of Abraham is saved today. Not all physical descendants receive the promise. That's why Romans 9, 6 says, not all Israel are Israel. Not everybody who's descended from physical Israel has been spiritually born again. It's spiritual Israel. Remember, Abraham had... Two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, one received the promise and the other didn't. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, one received the promise, the other one didn't. Israel had many descendants, but not all inherit the promise. You know, so not everybody who's descended from Israel belongs to that spiritual Israel. And I wish that was something that people understood today who are part of this Hebrew roots movement and, uh, you know, the Hebrew Israelites, that not everybody who's descended from Israel is really Israel. Even if you could prove that you're a descendant of Abraham, that would just make you as good as a rock. <laughs> Matthew 3.9 says, Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that these stones, from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. You're no better than a rock if you could prove that you're a descendant of Abraham. God can make a son from a rock if he chose to. And you could be a son who's no better than Esau. Rejected his birthright. Don't rejoice that you're a child of Abraham, but rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You know, that's why I need to rejoice. My name is in heaven. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who are left behind after this tribulation, this two-thirds are, have perished, that one-third are going to be the ones whose names are in the book. They're the, they're the ones who are saved. And what's the book? It's the divine record of all who will inherit eternal life. Those who have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world for salvation. It's God's divine appointment book. It's a divine appointment book. In uh, Acts 13, 48, it says, As many as had been appointed to eternal life believe. 
I remember the first time I ran across it, I'm like, that's, is that backwards? Because he expected to say, as many believed were appointed to eternal life, but it says as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God was doing something before you believed. God was, he chose you. He was drawing you. He selected you for himself. And then in time, you came to believe. But it's because your name has already been in the book. God's divine appointment. Calvin adds the word books, refers to that eternal counsel of God, whereby he elected us and adopted us and his sons before the foundation, us as his sons before the foundation of the world. And that's the greatest sense of the word for, for rescue, that we've been rescued from our sins. But in this case, there's those who are going to be physically preserved through the tribulation so that they can enter into that millennial kingdom. And that's what's brought up in the, the following verse, uh, that not only are there's people who enter into that kingdom, but there will also be those who are resurrected to enter into that kingdom. Look at verse, verse 2. Verse 2. It says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Number four, God resurrects his loved ones. God resurrects his loved ones. When the angel of this revelation speaks about those who sleep in the dust of the ground, it's a reference to physical death, speaking about physical death, and referring to the body itself as that which is in the ground it's reinforced by the, the language that's used here where they're said to be sleeping in the dust of the ground. And uh, it's used as a, a euphemism for, for death. It's our bodies that return to the ground and the souls go back to the Lord, right? Our bodies return to the ground. It's man's physical properties that came from the dust and his physical properties will go back to the dust. But it's after God you know, created man out, out of the dust of the ground that he breathed into him the breath of life. So it's that life that's going back to God and the, the body is going back to the earth. Like that's the way that it works. When the Bible speaks about sleep, the sleep of death, it's talking about the physical body that's going back to the ground. And that's against the, the false doctrine of people like the Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, Seventh-day Adventists who talk about soul sleep. That after we die, that our souls just go to sleep until you know thousands of years later when the Lord eventually wakes us up. But what does Paul say? Paul says... I have the desire to depart and to be with Christ. He's not looking for a nap. <laughs> no, it's like, I'm, I'm looking to be with Christ. You know, that's, that's where I go after I die. I go, I go to be with Christ. We're of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body. You know, the body's going back to the earth and to be at home with the Lord. So the body goes down and I go up. You know, that's what Paul says. It's our bodies that are said to be laid at rest. It's this earthly tent that the Lord has given us and then when the body shuts down, we're immediately at home with the Lord. And we have many illustrations of this in Scripture that after you die, that you're very much alive. <laughs> Saints like Moses and Elijah at the Mount of Transfiguration, they're talking to Jesus and they're not sleepwalking, right? They're, they're talking to Jesus. After they've died, they're still awake. They're talking. They're interacting. That, that's a picture of what will happen to us. After we die, we'll still be very much alive. The rich man and Lazarus, both very much awake. The rich man is even said to lift up his eyes in a place of torment, in the flames. The martyred saints in Revelation 6, verse 10, it says that they're before the throne of God saying, How long, O Lord? Very much awake. There is no such thing as soul sleep. You'll be very much awake the moment you die. But there will be a time when your soul will be reunited with your body in order to experience 
the joys and perform the functions that we've been created for. That that soul will be reunited with a body. Why would these need to arise from the dust? Why do they even need a body? It's because there's certain things that we're going to do in that body, certain joys that we're going to experience in that body, certain experiences that we'll have in that body, certain functions that we'll be able to perform in that body. And we get a hint of that if you look later on in the same chapter, chapter 12 and verse 13, where it's spoken of Daniel. It says, but as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest, this is talking about his death, and rise again for what? for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Remember Daniel, he was weeping and fasting and he's mourning over his people and they're not able to take the land and look what's happening and we're being trampled on by men. You know, when are we ever going to be able to get back here and do what we've been called to do? And God says, don't worry about it. <laughs> you're going to go to sleep, you're going to rise up again and you'll be right here. You, know, you, don't, you don't have to worry about what's going to happen in the future. You're going to receive your allotment. I remember my, uh, my pastor, Tom Leake, he used to say, you know, he liked traveling, but he said, it doesn't matter if I don't get to visit all the places that I want to because I'll have a thousand years to do that later on. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of places I won't visit during this life, but hey, I'll, I'll have time, you know, there's no rush. No rush, I'll be able to see it when I rise again. And Daniel had the hope that he would rise again. He would have a physical body that would interact with the physical creation and he would receive his allotment. And that's how Daniel would have understood it. He's going to rise again to enter into that. The resurrection to everlasting life, it's called. Which is not just a quantity of life. It's a quality of life. This everlasting life. In other words, it's not merely that I exist forever. You know, that, that's really not a lot of good if I'm just existing forever. What am I doing while I'm existing? Even unbelievers will exist forever, right? They're going to exist forever, but they don't experience the joy and the blessing and the glory forever. Everlasting life that we experience is everlasting joy, blessing, glory. Verse 2 goes on to say that others will awake to disgrace and everlasting contempt. We arise, we enter into everlasting glory, joy, blessing. But there's another group that also rises up. And there's another kind of resurrection. But this is a resurrection to disgrace and contempt. And those who rise in this resurrection will also have bodies that are outfitted for them. We have bodies that will be fitted for all the joys that we'll experience, where the unbeliever will be outfitted with the body to experience all the eternal misery and perform certain functions for all of eternity, like the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it's for their everlasting disgrace and contempt. There is no such thing as annihilation. There's one of two destinations that you go after you die. You're either in the presence of God for all of eternity, joy, blessing, peace, or you end up in a place of torment and judgment for the rest of eternity without any hope of escape. There's only two places. Only two places. Annihilation, frankly, would be a lot easier to deal with. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It's just not what the Bible teaches. Again, Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, they just teach this idea of annihilation. The Bible teaches that there's going to be a resurrection to life and to death. A resurrection to eternal life and a resurrection to eternal death. Shame, reproach, where the beliefs and practices that you once held dear 
are now going to be shamed and ridiculed for all of eternity. It's disgrace. You turn away from the, the truth, it's a disgrace for the rest of eternity. And contempt is a word that means to be abhorred. It's something to be avoided, something to be cast off and disgust. And it's one of the two. You're either going to be embraced and brought into that everlasting joy, or you're going to be thrown off in disgrace and disgust as something contemptible. Forever alienated, forever outside the camp. Jeremy Walker, in his book, The Brokenhearted Evangelist, he describes what may be true of some of us who argue for what he says we can commonly describe as the doctrine of hell. He says, of course there's a hell we protest. Offended and disturbed that someone could deny what is so plainly written in the word of God. But then he asked the question, is there a hell? What difference has it made? What difference has it made that you believe in the doctrine of hell? What difference has it made for you? How have you lived differently because you believe in hell? What have you done differently because you believe in hell? Spurgeon says, oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly destroy themselves. There is a resurrection for those who will be forever damned. And if you're here today and you have not turned to Jesus Christ, I, I, I plead with you that today would be the day. Why would you destroy yourself? Why would you live in everlasting eternity in disgrace? Where everything that you've held dear, everything that you've thought was honorable, is going to be discarded. And where you yourself will be discarded, alienated, abhorred, having nothing to do with you anymore. Do you know what's the, the worst part about hell? It's not that, that God is absent. It's that God is present. That God is present. But what's absent is all of the joy, the peace, the blessings, all the attributes of God that we, we love, that we, had, that we rejoice in. You're going to be absent from that from all of, for all of eternity. Never experiencing the light of God forever. There's a resurrection for the damned. And what sins would you hold on to and forfeit your eternity? What, what sins are worth it? What sins would be worth the wrath of God to be cast out of his presence forever? Disgrace for all of eternity. Drop your sins and rush to Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ will take your sin and you can take his righteousness. But it's only if you come to Christ it's only if you're willing to say no to your sin and yes to him. There's only one way. And it's through Jesus Christ. Drop your sins and come to Christ. We beg you to come to Christ. There's going to be a resurrection of the, the unrighteous. But I'd argue that it doesn't even happen at the same time as the righteous. The resurrection of the damned happens at a different time than the righteous. Lennox, in his commentary on Daniel, he writes this, Think of the well-known prophecies regarding the Messiah. Daniel spoke of him coming on the clouds of heaven, whereas Zechariah said he would come riding on a donkey. The apparent contradiction is solved by the fact that the coming of the Messiah turned out not to be simply a point in time, but to two distinct comings, 
separated by a very lengthy period during which the Messiah would be absent. Any of us, would any of us have even realized that the coming was to be two stages, let alone place the details in the correct sequence? So he talks about like, you know, the coming of Christ, you know, it's talked about in the clouds, it's talked about on a donkey, and it's like, well, which one's right? Both are right, right? Just separated by time. In the same way, when we speak about this resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, it would appear that they occur at the same time, but they actually happen at two different times. Flip over to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. This is a passage that starts to help us put things in the right order here. Revelation 20. Revelation 20, starting at verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, shut it, sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So there's a resurrection to life for those that enter into that thousand year reign with Christ. And then there's another resurrection that happens after the thousand years are completed. It says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. There's a resurrection that happens at the beginning of the righteous who enter into the thousand years. And then there's a resurrection at the end. Two resurrections. So what's this saying? It's saying there's going to be a resurrection where the dead will come to life at the end of the thousand years. And it's at that time that they receive their judgment. And that's not what's happening today. <laughs> You know, when we read these, these passages, Satan is not bound today, is he? Uh, I think he's quite loose. <laughs> Satan is quite loose. Be sober. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. He's not, he's not chained up today. The nations are still being deceived today, right? Second John 1, 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. The dead haven't come back to life today to receive their allotted portion. I mean, if this is the kingdom, Daniel's missed out because he's not here for it. So before this thousand-year reign, this millennial reign, we call it of Christ, there's going to be a resurrection, and those who are resurrected will enter into that reign and receive their allotted portion. And Jesus will reign on the earth with his disciples, just like he said he would in Matthew 19. And the earth will be transformed itself and experience the freedom of the sons of God. And it's only after this period that the wicked are brought back to life to receive their final judgment at the great white throne. That's what... Revelation 20, 12 to 15 speaks about. And it all fits into the framework of Daniel. I mean, it's all there. And, and what we have to do is just understand that there's further revelation that, that helps to clarify, you know, things that came before. And the ones who enter into that reign are those who have their names written in the book. All fits. It all fits. Daniel wouldn't have known necessarily about the separation of the resurrections. He also wouldn't have known about the mystery of the church 
and the rapture of the church prior to the tribulation. He wouldn't have known about that. He didn't receive a full eschatology, but he did receive what he needed to understand. He received what he needed to understand. How does God watch over his loved ones? God guards his loved ones. He preserves his loved ones. He rescues his loved ones. He resurrects his loved ones. Number five, he glorifies his loved ones. Look at verse two, back in Daniel 12. It says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Following this resurrection to life, there's going to be a transformation to glory. And this is exciting. <laughs> this is exciting. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. I heard that was a verse they used to put on nurseries in the church, you know. For the babies, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. <laughs> we let parents change their own kids here, so sorry we don't have that up. But uh, if we did, you know, we'd probably put that up. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. This, this body is a decaying body. Uh, Paul describes it like a tent that can be torn up, torn down, thrown away. We're all somewhere in the process of, of dying. But even these bodies that we have, once they go back to the earth, will be resurrected to life again. And it doesn't matter what particles of dust your body turns into or what you do with it, right? It could be lost at sea. God's still going to bring it back up. God knows how to, the one who formed you in your mother's womb knows how to bring your DNA strands back together and reform your body, doesn't he? The one who can count every hair of your head and numbers all the stars by name, he can put you back together, can he? You will be you. <laughs> your body's coming back. You will be you. And Jesus looked like Jesus when he came back from the dead, right? His disciples could recognize him. That means that, that you will be recognizable even after you're gone. And what that means is that you'll see your loved ones again. Amen. You'll see your loved ones again. You'll see your sister again. You'll see your daughter again. You'll see your mother again. You'll see your wife again. You'll see your husband again. You'll see your brother, your father. You'll see him again. Your grandparents, uncles, aunts, friends. You will see them again. Because they will be resurrected. Those who have died in Christ, you will see them again. That's incredible. We're going to be resurrected back to life. So we will look like us. We will be us in these resurrected bodies. And we look to be clothed, the Bible says. Death is going to be swallowed up in victory. And what's mortal is going to be swallowed up by life. And those bodies will have a different capacity than the bodies that we had down here. The Bible says that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There's no longer going to be any death. You won't die. No longer any mourning or crying. No pain because the first things have passed away. We will be in a glorified body. And not only will you look like you, but you will also look not like you. <laughs> There's going to be things about you that are going to be different. Praise God. Hallelujah. Right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. The bodies that you will have, the resurrected, glorified bodies, are going to be illumined by the glory of the Lord. Daniel 12 verse 3 says, Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Scripture lets us know that when Jesus returns to this earth, he's going to return in glory. 
Not like he came the first time, humble, you know, in a manger and all that. You know, the Christmas story's not happening again. He's coming back and he's, you know, taking names, right? <laughs> it's just like, he's coming back. And when he comes, every eye will see him. He's going to come in his glory, in the full brightness of his glory. In Matthew 16, 27, it says, The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will recompense every man according to his deeds. 2 Thessalonians verse 1 and 7, chapter 1, verse 7, says the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. It's going to be a dazzling light show when Jesus Christ shows up. But how do the saints show up? The saints will also appear in some kind of expression of glory. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10 says, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, the saints will appear in glory. Colossians 3 and verse 4 says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We're coming back and we're looking the same, but we're looking different. That's going to be us. And there's a number of passages that point this out. It's amazing how many passages speak about this. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Philippians chapter 3, verses 21 and 20, uh, 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We will have bodies that will one day shine forth with the brightness of the sun when we enter into the kingdom of the Father. Another reason why we're not yet in the millennial kingdom. Because <laughs> I don't see anybody lighting up when the lights go out, okay? You're not there yet. I mean, you might look in the mirror and think you're there. You've arrived. You have not arrived. Just, just take it from me, all right? You have not arrived yet. Matthew 13, verse 43 says, Then the righteous will shine forth as the son in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's going to be dazzling. It's going to be dazzling. As Lightfoot puts it, the world that persecutes us, despises us, ignores us, will then be blinded with the dazzling glory of that revelation. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way in The Weight of Glory. He says, the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be tempted to worship. In other words, you'd appear like an angel. The Apostle John, when he saw the angel, what did, what did he do? He, he bowed down. It's like, you know, it's like, no, no, don't, don't do that. I mean, I'm a creature just like you, and one day you're going to shine. <laughs> but one day we're going to dazzle like the angels, shine like the brightness of the sun. There's the glory that will be revealed in the saints that the world wouldn't be able to handle now. And the, the people the brothers and sisters that you just kind of like walk by and you ignore and you don't want to talk to, one day they might be outshining you. You might want to get to know them now. <laughs> might want to get to know them now. And what determines the brightness of that glory in the future? In verse 3 it says, those who have insight will shine and those who lead many to righteousness. What does that look like? Simply it's filling yourself with the truth and then sharing it. You want to turn the lights on a little bit brighter? Fill yourself with the truth and share it. It's teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. It's witnessing, it's counseling, it's preaching, it's proclaiming, 
It's discipling. It's coming alongside of somebody to warn them, to exhort them. Those who have insight will shine. Those who lead others to righteousness will shine. Is that what you're doing now? Is that what you're doing? Even Daniel engaging in the writing of this book. This is part of his future glory. We, we need to be engaged in what will bring us that future glory. What's going to, what would we wish we would have done when we get there on that day? It's like, I, I wish I would have told somebody about the book of Daniel when I was down there. It's like, now I'm a little, you know, glow worm over here. It's like, you know, it's like you can be dazzling, right? <laughs> Prepared. Daniel, not only, a, a, it says God guards his loved ones. We talked about that. God guards his loved ones, preserves his loved ones, rescues his loved ones, resurrects his loved ones, glorifies his loved ones. My last point, God prepares his loved ones, all right? This is it. We're almost done. Verse 4. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. How does God prepare his loved ones? He gives them what they need when they need it. He gives them what they need when they need it. There's so much more to say about the end times. There really is. There's a ton more to say about the end times. But for Daniel, it's, this is what he needed right now. And he says, seal up, conceal the world, seal up the book until the end time. Daniel, you've, you've, you've had enough. You've had enough, Daniel. And we know that Daniel had a lot more questions than this. Down in verse 8, if you look at chapter 12 and verse 8, he says, as for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? Verse 9, he said, go your way, Daniel. For these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. No more questions. And then again, before he can ask another question in verse 13, look what he says again. But as for you, go your way to the end. Like, like Daniel, it's enough. You, you've had enough. You, you couldn't handle more if I gave you more. But I've given you what you need to be prepared for where you are. The secret things belong to the Lord. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. And what Daniel needed to know in order to calm his anxious soul, he was given. He still had more questions. I still have more questions. But he says, no, Daniel, that's enough. Go your way. You, you've had enough. And there's others who will come after Daniel who will likewise be given all they need to know because the word that's sufficient for him is also sufficient for us. God's word is sufficient for where we are. It gives us all that we need to know for where we are. And here Daniel is told to conceal these words, seal it up, to seal up or conceal it. Didn't mean to keep it secret, otherwise we wouldn't have this book. Daniel didn't keep this a secret. But as one commentator said in the ancient Near East, the custom was to seal an important document by impressing upon it the identifying marks of the parties involved and the recording scribe. A sealed text was not to be tampered with or changed. It's put in a safe place where it could be preserved. And Daniel's basically told to preserve this. It's really a way to tell Daniel, don't add to it, don't take away from it, seal it, preserve it. I know you don't understand it all right now, but you have what you need to know for now. And there's going to come a future generation that will need this book. And aren't we so glad that we have Daniel today? We're, we're thankful for this book. And I've been so incredibly blessed by this book. And there will come others to follow who will be blessed by this book. And at the end of verse 4, it says, many will go back and forth. It's a phrase that's used for wandering around, searching for knowledge. In the book of Amos, it talks about people who stagger from sea to sea, from north to east. They go to and fro to seek the word of God, but they can't find it. But those who look to the word of God will increase in knowledge. I've left this book here for the future generations who will increase in knowledge. And there's going to come a time during the Great Tribulation where people will again turn to Daniel because it's going to give them a roadmap, some instructions. What do I do? And that's good news because God's word that's sufficient today will be sufficient then. And we can be comforted 
and filled with hope and encouragement and peace, even in the worst of times because we have God's inerrant word. We have all that we need. God's given us so much, hasn't he? God, God, God has so cared for us. And here we have this example that even during the worst of times that God can guard, preserve, rescue, resurrect, glorify, prepare us for all that we'll face. This is what God is doing. God is doing this. I'll close with an illustration. Uh, the German reformer Martin Luther and his wife Katie, Katie von Bora, for some of you who know that name, were blessed with six children. They wrote carols for their children. Martin catechized each one of his children. He actually wrote smaller catechisms for the entire church in order to help them train up their children. And we see the benefit of what he taught his children in uh, even this passage in his own life when uh, the life of his daughter, Magdalena, was taken when she was only 14 years old. And for Luther, it might have been one of the worst possible times in all of his life. When she was on her deathbed, Luther prayed. And he says, oh God, I love her so much, but thy will be done. And then turning to her, he said, Magdalena, my little girl, would you be glad to go to your father in heaven? And she said, yes, father, as God wills. 14 years old. Yes, Father, as God wills. And as Luther held his child in his arms, she passed on. And when she was laid away, he said, you will shine and rise like the stars and the sun. Where do you think that truth came from? Daniel chapter 12. You're going to rise again and you're going to shine like the stars and the sun. It was the truth that he held on to in one of the darkest times of his life. And it's the same kind of truth that we can hold on to today during what we might consider to be the darkest times of our life. I can still turn to this word, and I can get encouragement and blessing from this. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Love of every love the best. Tis an ocean vast of blessing. Tis a haven sweet of rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis heaven of heavens to me, and it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to thee. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, spread his praise from shore to shore. How he loveth, ever loveth, changeth never, nevermore. How he watches over his loved ones, died to call them all his own. How for them he intercedes, watcheth over them from the throne. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that we have from our great God. We thank you for the deep, deep love of Jesus. The love of every love, his love is the best. And we're grateful that he's the one who watches over his loved ones. And Father, we're so grateful for this word, for the book of Daniel, for all that it's teaching us. Now, Father, I pray that you'd grant us encouragement from your word. Now, Father, that we would not turn away from these things as those who are unchanged, Lord, but that you would transform us. Now, help us to have a greater view of the glory to come. And help us to be motivated even more for the glory that's to come. And Father, may you receive all the glory and honor from our lives. In Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, 
CDs, and digital files.